You are listening to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram. And I would love to hear your thoughts on guests you would most like me to have on the show. You can message me there, and I would love to hear your thoughts. But to our episode today, and in my eyes, we have one of the most under-the-radar rock stars of Silicon Valley on the show. He has started six enterprise infrastructure companies and sold, yes, you guessed it, six. In addition, he's also one of the most genuine and lovely people in the industry. And so I'm very, very excited for this. And with that in mind, I'm thrilled to welcome Peter Yarrod to the hot seat today. Today. Peter is the founder and CEO at InCountry, the startup that allows you to operate globally with data residency as a service, meaning they store your mission-critical data in its country of origin without compliance. To date, Peter has raised $8 million for InCountry from some of my very favorites, including Bloomberg Beta, Felicis, Ray Tonsing at Caffeinated, and CRV, just to name a few. And prior to InCountry, Peter founded, as I said, and sold six enterprise software companies acquired by the likes of Sun, Citrix, VMware, Oracle, Sprinkler, and ProGraph. And previously, Peter was also the CTO and CIO of CBS Interactive, where he brought CBS into the cloud. I do also have to say a huge thank you to the very wonderful Fuad El Nagar and Ray Tonsing at Caffeinated for providing some fantastic question suggestions today. Mojito's on me for that. But before we dive into the episode today, did you know that more than half of your customers' digital time is spent on mobile? Well, that's why every digital brand needs a mobile strategy. But as an app marketer, you need to understand the true ROI of your mobile app to be able to make smarter decisions. Adjust takes the guesswork out and provides data-driven insights to drive more effective mobile campaigns, empowering mobile app marketers to convert and retain their most valuable users, answering core questions like, which marketing campaigns perform the best? Where are my most valuable users coming from? How can I boost my retention rates? Essentially, Adjust gives you the ability to make better informed marketing decisions, and if you want to learn more about the ways Adjust can help you drive more results for your mobile app, visit adjust.com forward slash sasta. And if Adjust covers the world of mobile, Lob's making the world programmable. Lob's software platform automates age-old offline business processes in a modern, intelligent, and technology-forward way. For example, they allow you to programmatically send personalized postcards, letters, and checks to your customers with comprehensive per-piece mail tracking and analytics. But don't take my word for it. With clients like Booking.com, HelloFresh, SeatGeek, and more all loving it, there's no doubt on this one. Lob is the best platform there is for turning address quality and direct mail into competitive advantages for your business. Check it out today at Lob.com. And last but by no means least, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to Roger Devine, co-founder of SchoolAuction.net. SchoolAuction is the leading provider of software to help non-profit groups like PTAs, animal shelters, boys and girls clubs, and chambers of commerce put on fundraising auctions. Hi, Harry. My advice is this. Monitor your brand promise constantly. Do your employees describe the same way you do? Do your customers? Do your vendors? Are there elements of your brand promise that have diminished in importance to your customers? That would be alarming, but also potentially an opportunity. Love that from Roger. And delivering on what you promise to customers is key. And another key can be using a solution like the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. However, you've heard quite enough of me drearing on. And so now I'm very excited to hand over to a dear friend, Peter Yarrod, founder and CEO at InCountry. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Peter, my word, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show today. You know I'm one of your biggest fans, and so I'm so thrilled we can make this happen. And thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Harry, thanks so much for having me as well. And it was great to see you in London a few weeks ago. It was so nice to see you in person, but I do want to start today with some context. Now, you founded and sold an incredible six companies. So how did you make your way first into startups? And then really secondly, what was that founding moment for you within country today? 
Well, it's a funny story. I started programming computers as a kid in the late 70s and 80s because I'm old. So I was always building tools and infrastructure, databases, things like that. And then when I was in my early 20s, I wrote some tools for an existing tool and the company loved it. And initially they licensed it and then they acquired it. And then I did it again and again and again. And so it really became a bad habit. And then what was the founding moment within country after the bad habit of selling companies? Well, you know, I grew up overseas. My father worked for the UN, so I sort of a global perspective on things. And a few years ago, I noticed that there was a trend not for globalization, but de-globalization, and mainly because of technology. So this goes beyond Trump and Brexit and things like that. But you look at some technology trends like automated manufacturing and 3D printing and lab-grown meat, vertical farming and clean energy. And I honestly think just in a few short years, people are going to go, can you believe that they used to make all the wash machines in the world in one place and then ship them everywhere. Or every lamb chop was in, came from New Zealand or every pineapple from Costa Rica. I think technology is going to distribute this. So everything's going to be made locally. And you know, you want a pineapple, it's grown down the street. You want a lamb chop, it's grown down the street. And from the technology perspective, you have a set of large companies that have been going internationally. They enter markets, they extract all the value, they shift the profits out to other places. They abuse the right to hold citizen data. And you now have a lot of countries are starting to push back on this. And this is not just like Russia and China and authoritarian regimes wanting to track a text message between two people. This is the UAE just passed a law that all health data has to be stored in the UAE. So France is passing a law, Germany a law, Indonesia, Vietnam, India just passed a massive law in December that said all payment and transaction data has to be stored in India and managed in India because the countries are really pushing back and they're saying, hey, we manage our citizens' data here and it's going to be under our law and stored here. And that was really the impetus for in-country. Now, I absolutely love that as the impetus. I do have a couple of points to unpack. One is on the schedule, one's totally off the schedule. So let's go with the first on the schedule. And it's, I had Joe Fernandez on the show from Joy Mode. He said that serial entrepreneurship is potentially overrated. Now, with the vast wealth of six companies and six companies sold, I'm interested, would you agree with the overrated nature of serial entrepreneurship? Or would you actually say that there have been some real takeaways? And if so, what have those been? Well, I don't know if it's necessarily overrated. I think entrepreneurship is overrated. Everybody wants to do it and not everybody has the aptitude or attitude for it. You know, my old boss, Jim Lanzone at CBS used to call it like being in a band in high school. You'd be like, I'm in a band. Everybody was in a band, right? Because they wanted to be cool. And for a long time there, everybody was in a startup because it was cool. You know, the main thing you get from doing it a bunch of times, you've made all the mistakes already. You know, or a lot of them. Six, seven time around, you're only making new mistakes. But for me, it's fun to build stuff. I've always built stuff. And, you know, now I've kind of learned the knack of how to build this kind of thing. And I love tech and I love building teams and working with fun people. So it's kind of hard not to do it again. Now, I always say I use the show mercilessly for my own self-improvement, and I'm going to here. So obviously, you know, I'm an investor today. You said about the natural aptitude in terms of kind of entrepreneurship. How do you think, and how as you, the entrepreneur, do you think about kind of stress testing that aptitude within a potential entrepreneur and whether they have that A, aptitude, B, resilience, grit that is required, especially in such short fundraising timelines today? Yeah, you know, it's kind of hard. It's interesting because you see repeat entrepreneurs, even if they fail, people want to invest in them because they know what they're in for. 
And if somebody hasn't done it before, you really have to kind of poke around a little bit to see whether they have it or not. And it's really not clear. You know, it's funny. Some people look at sports, you know, or other things that you do where you just have the grit and resilience to get through something and be good at something, right? And it's difficult. It's hard to read. No, totally. I'm with you. It's one of my biggest challenges. The second there was also actually kind of related to in-country and why it's such an exciting opportunity now, potentially, is also market timing. How do you think about market timing? It's always one thing that I say it's not a risk that I'm willing to take. Do you think market timing actually is a risk that investors should be willing to take? And how do you kind of think about the importance in the stack when assessing opportunities? Well, market timing is no longer a risk I'm willing to take because I've done a few companies that were too early and it can just be the depth of misery. Sometimes you're forced to sell early. And, you know, I remember somebody said years ago, early is wrong. And my last two companies actually started as side projects. So Mark Reiser, the chief architect in country, was also the first guy in at Sappho, first guy in at Postano PostPost. And we just tinkered for a couple of years. And then the time was right. You could see things shifting, new laws passing, and it was time to go full time and invest in this. So I actually really focus on making the timing right for these deals now. I don't just jump into them because, you know, I had a crazy idea. This one, I had the idea three years ago, and then we developed it for a good two years before I jumped into it. No, I absolutely love that. And uh, I'm so glad that you agree on the market timing, I have to say. I do want to ask, because you said about landscape shifting there. And I think we've seen real shifts in the enterprise landscape. And when we chatted before on the subject, you said to me, it seems like enterprise is hard again. So what's your thinking for saying this, Peter? Well, you know, there was a window there where you could build a little SaaS startup and start selling it into enterprise, build your way up, get in at a department, get in at a division, cross-sell. There wasn't that much competition in a lot of areas. And so there was this sort of Cambrian explosion of little SaaS startups. Now, a lot of them kind of flatlined and a lot of them did really well and a lot of them rolled up and exited. But, you know, you look at what's going on in enterprise now, you know, if some person in, you know, manager of a department brings in a SaaS vendor without an InfoSec check, you know, they're going to be fired. So the days of sort of creeping into an account sideways are kind of behind us. And it's funny because I remember, you know, this is kind of funny, actually. My first VC pitch of my career was in 1996. I think I was like 25, 26 years old. It was Kleiner Perkins. And I go in there and I'm like, oh, you want to see a demo? They're like, why don't you tell us about yourself? But, you know, it was really funny. They asked me, what are you going to do? And this is like an early Java company. They're like, what are you going to do when IBM and Microsoft enter this market? And I was like, oh, come on. They're not going to be in this market for four or five years, which proved to be true. You know, I'm worried about the other startups. And, you know, you look at this company and people are like, oh, what are you going to do about the other startups? I'm like, I'm not worried about other startups. I'm worried about Amazon and Google. You know, So it's almost like the entire thing is flipped now. And you really do have to worry about the large incumbents. And there's just not that many people doing large scale enterprise startups anymore. Can I ask, why is it flipped? Because I often hear from the investing class that actually, nope, you know, when we're assessing kind of competitive landscapes, oh, don't worry about the big incumbents. Let's worry about the four people in a garage building the next API-centric company or whatever that may be as the real competitors. Why do you think it's actually shifted back the other way to the incumbents being the real competitors? Well, you look at my segment, which is infrastructure software and the large cloud vendors, they've been like a vacuum cleaner. They have hoovered up all the talent. They're incredibly aggressive. I mean, you go look at Amazon services page on Amazon Web Services. They have products that I don't even remember them launching that are now on their 10th iteration. So they are all over the place in this segment and it is increasingly difficult to compete. You know, and they're also hoovering up all the talent. A lot of the folks 
I know that started companies 10, 15 years ago now work for Amazon and Google because they just give them big checks to come and have some fun. But I do have to ask in another, and it's again asking for advice, you know, I see so many startups attacking the enterprise and they have pilots with big names, impressive people behind them. Does that really mean anything though today, having these pilots? And what are the proof points that would suggest to you that something really does have the legs in those very, very early days? Well, in the early days, there's a couple hacks to market, which is, you know, you get your buddies at Airbnb and Slack and Dropbox to use it. And there's your big names. Or you get into the bigger enterprises through the innovation teams, which a lot of times go nowhere. So you really have to look at who the names are and are they actually using the tech? And is there an actually fit in the companies? You can't just look at the list of names. You got to look at what the projects are and then ask the entrepreneur, well, how did you get into that account? Right. And who's using it? Who's the decision maker? Yeah, totally. No, I'm very much with you. I guess, you know, another thing is like, how do you think that they can instill, especially when selling to these large enterprises, how can they instill the confidence that they're maybe much bigger and more stable player than they are? Maybe if you're applying to yourself with in-country, when you're dealing with, you know, huge incumbents data, how do you instill the confidence when, relatively speaking, you're still a small company? Well, you know, it's funny. This company is only five months old. The quality of meeting we're getting is unbelievable. Just like two weeks ago, we had a meeting with the head of infrastructure, and this was actually the head of infrastructure for massive financial institution. And it was very funny because, look, the days of a startup pretending they're bigger than they are are kind of over because the level of diligence these companies go through before they work with you is pretty high. And they can tell just from their diligence process on you where you really are at. And they all do the reference checks and what have you. But what this guy said was really funny because in one way it was really validating. He's like, oh, you know, we clearly have a problem in this space. I'm like, oh, wonderful. And then he was like, you know, now we have to decide whether it's worth the pain of working with a startup versus doing it ourselves. And it's my job to make the pain of being a startup and working with us not that difficult and add some salt to that such that they want to. And a lot of folks don't do that. I've been on the buy side. I was a CIO of the CBS Interactive, you know, the digital group at CBS for years. It's my job to structure this company such that we're not a pain to work with. And a lot of that is just communication and transparency. No, I totally agree with you. I, I do have to ask, I, you know, speak to Jason Lampkin a lot at Sasta, and he's always very, very much focused around the founder-centric salesman. Can I ask, you've mentioned there about, you know, speaking to the head of infrastructure at a huge organization. Do you personally really enjoy the sales process? And would you agree with Jason as it being truly central to being successful as a CEO of an infrastructure company? You know, I do agree, especially in the early days, but and sometimes it's a bad signal when you're buying something and there's no salesperson, there's no SE, there's not a bunch of materials, there's a lot of infrastructure behind it. And then you meet the CEO after later in the sales process. It can be a bad signal that the company's really not mature actually, right? Because you don't have a scalable sale at the founder's the only one selling. But you know, in the early days, who else can do it, right? And as long as you're transparent about where you are, I totally agree. The founder has to be the one in there selling the software, selling the solution and learning from the customers and the prospects. So that's always one question that I get is, you know, obviously, does the founder have to do the selling themselves? The other one really applied to enterprise and SMB is where on earth do I start? Is it easier to start at enterprise and work down to SMB or vice versa? How do you think about the right insertion point within kind of enterprise or SMB and which way to go? Well, you know, a lot of times people are like, this is the answer. And the thing is, it depends on the context. It depends on the product. It depends on the market. I will say this. It is very, very difficult to only sell to 
enterprise because you end up with very bumpy sales quarter to quarter. One slip deal destroys your quarter. So, you know, my strategy is you have to have something that you can sell to SMB that's enterprise grade. So you have something that you can sell into mid markets that are a little more flexible in their buying cycles, but that also you build everything you need to do an enterprise sale. You get your SOC 2, get all the processes in place. And then when the enterprise sales do come in, it's just a boon. But in the meantime, you do have some steady revenue. So a lot of people say you have to focus on just one market and what have you. And for me, it's you focus on an entry point, but you have to have a product that can scale up. And you don't want to go back in time and try to add that stuff later because it can just be a nightmare. Can I ask, you also notice, you mentioned there about kind of the lumpiness of sales. You also notice very volatile sales confidence amongst the sales team due to the much lower cadence of agile deals that they do compared to maybe SMB and mid-market where you have a much more consistent flow of deals being signed, logos being added. Do you notice that kind of sales morale hit in large enterprise only? Well, you know, if you have salespeople that are used to that type of sale, you know, I think it's okay. But yeah, you go six, nine, 12 months without a deal, it really definitely saps morale, you know, and then people maybe leave or they have to be cycled out. It can be tough, right? So it is important that you do have some kind of trickle of sales coming in always. And it's foundational to a company to have customers and users. If you go too long without that, it really creates a lot of dysfunction, you know, and you have an engineering organization that lives in an ivory tower. They get annoyed. There's a feature request. (laughs) How can this be? We've got great plans here. So it's not just sales that gets impacted if there's not like a regular trickle of deal flow. Totally. No, I'm very much with you there in terms of the multiplier effect. But you said the word insertion point. And insertion point is kind of one of my favorite topics to discuss. One of the many reasons I'm still single, Peter, as you know from meeting me. But I do have to ask, before you said, you have to find the crumbs that are falling out of the big cloud vendors' mouths. Now, what did you mean by this? Because you left me on the cliffhanger. Well, you know, like I was saying earlier, these large cloud vendors, they are gobbling up this market and they're just biting off massive pieces of it. And you have to figure out, hey, I do infrastructure software. I'm doing it in the cloud. You know, I can't sell what Amazon is selling and Microsoft is selling and Ali Cloud is selling because you can't go head to head with that. So you have to find the crumbs that are falling out of their mouths. And you look at my insertion point right now is the large cloud vendors are not in these smaller markets that have bad power infrastructure and bad internet connection activity and what have you, like, you know, Vietnam or Indonesia, you know, when they build out a region, it's massive. So our insertion point is, hey, you need storage and processing in Indonesia, use us, don't go find your own facility. So you have to find your insertion point where these guys are not. Now, of course, you have, you know, people that have proven me wrong, like Snowflake is doing data warehouse in the cloud. And, you know, they competed head to head with one of Amazon's products, you know, uh, Redshift, and they're doing very, very well. And now they're moving to multi-cloud. So again, there's no hard and fast rule. But generally, you don't want to be competing head-to-head directly with a big vendor's product. I totally get you in terms of that direct head-to-head competition. I do have to ask, if not doing that and going for that niche insertion point, it makes me think of market size. And actually, I had Peter Fenton and Sarah Tavel at Benchmark on the show. And Peter and Sarah said, don't worry about big markets. Find your niche and expand. Would you very much agree with this thinking? And when assessing opportunity, how paramount a thought is kind of initial market size when entering an industry? Well, you know, it depends. Are you doing a replacement product that's better? Then there's a definite TAM, right? And But, you know, usually I'm looking for a big trend. And then what's my insertion point into the 
that trend. And you can't start big. You have to have something small. Hey, we have a server in Indonesia you can use towards this big trend of, hey, pretty soon you're going to have to store all your regulated data the way these various countries want. And that's going to be a nightmare if you're a multinational. So for me, you always have to have something that you can sell that's small, that's easy to deliver, that's easy to consume, but that is part of a big trend. No, I, I totally get you. If it's part of a big trend, does that not have market timing inherently inserted within it? 100%, right? So this company in country, when I had the idea three years ago, people thought it was absolutely insane. So, you know, pre-Trump, pre-Brexit, everyone's like, oh, it's much more efficient to store all the data in one database. Don't people understand this? And most of Silicon Valley still thinks this way. But I think the trend is out there and it's happening. And just in the last six months, the number of laws and regulations that have passed have been astronomical. So I think the timing on the trend is the most important thing. So you got to read the trend before everybody else does. And then once it starts getting a little bit of momentum, you know, the wave's starting to suck in, you got to catch it. I totally with you in terms of catching and really kind of capitalizing on the momentum that you have. I do want to talk about building that team around you though that will allow you to capitalize on it in the best way that you can. We chatted again over lunch and you said highly dysfunctional nature of some large orgs and, and how prominent that is today. Walk me through this, Peter. They seem very organized and functional from the outside. So why are they so dysfunctional and why maybe now more than ever? Maybe larger orgs are still functional by some aspects. You know, they're moving forward, they're delivering stuff. But what's happening nowadays in larger organizations is the level of matrix decision-making is unbelievable. And you see this pretty much everywhere but Amazon. You know, it's endless meetings. Nobody wants to have any accountability. Everyone's totally inauthentic. People are terrified they'll say the wrong thing and piss somebody off. So you can't really challenge any assumptions anymore. And it's just incredibly painful. The level of meetings and talking and being on just to get anything done at larger organizations now. And we always used to joke about, you know, I was at Sun Microsystems for five years and we're like, oh yeah, there's a lot of meetings and da, da, da. But you know, you did not have to align with 15 different people that don't tell you the truth. And that's generally the reality of large organizations nowadays. No, I do see that personally and understand that. But I, I do want to ask then, if you kind of place yourself within that context and go, okay, well, we want to extract the best talent. What do you think founders can do to extract the best talent from these dysfunctional but well-paid jobs in large orgs? Well, you know, it depends on the role. There are some roles you can't pull out anymore, and there are some that you can. So if you go to large organizations, they usually have a ton of different products and different strategies. And you go to what's middle management, a Google is definitely more than qualified to be your VP. And if that person isn't sitting on like a massive treasure trove of stock, you have an opportunity to pull them out. Totally. Okay. So now you have the opportunity to pull them out. You go directly to them. You work through networks. How do you think about building the best exact team you can kind of strategically in terms of extraction? Well, it's a mix. Some people come to you, other people you've known for years. And I mean, you got to have a good idea and you got to make it fun and interesting. And so you can pull certain types of people out of large companies. Then there's other things where you just kind of give up the days of hiring a bunch of engineers out of Google. And it's funny because you go to like these VC talent things and they're like, here, Here's how you pull somebody out of Google. I remember at one, I just got tired of it, you know, and there was like 30 CEOs in the room. I'm like, who here has actually hired an engineer out of Google, Facebook, or Microsoft? And there was not a single hand that went up. And finally, somebody said, well, you get them after somebody else has pulled them out, and then maybe you have a chance, <laughs> right? So the reality on engineering talent, getting people out of these places is really slim nowadays. I totally, I couldn't agree with you more that. That's a very funny event. But I did speak to Ray Tonsing, our mutual friend before the show, and he's been 
very specifically about the transition from CTO to CEO. Now, I want to dive in a little bit on this. How have you found the transition from CTO to CEO? Well, I've done both before. It's funny doing it this time. It's like, I miss my co-founder, Fuad Al-Nagar from Safa. He did his stuff. I did my stuff. We used to shoot the shit together. And, you know, I don't get the focus on the tech as much, but I get to spend more time selling and team building, you know, and selling a vision. You know, you have to do one or the other. It's kind of hard to do both. And for me, it's kind of fun to switch back to the CEO role this time. But definitely he was better at raising money and stuff like that. And sometimes I'm like, what would Fuad do? You know, I call him <laughs> up and I'm like, what? What should I do? That's hilarious. Have him as a little intercom chat in the, in the sidebar. I do want to ask, and Ray asked this, why do you think you'll need help? Well, definitely. I've had a lot of experience building teams. I've had a lot of experience with go-to-market. For me, the help is mainly around financing, financials, revenue recognition, that kind of stuff. And that's where I reach out to friends, my former co-founder, other people who know this business, Andy Rankin, who helped us bundle the Safo rounds and helped me with in-country and was actually brand business development for us at Safo. So there's a set of people I go to for help on that kind of stuff. I did not know you knew Andy Rankin. Andy's one of my favorites. So that is fantastic to hear. I, I do want to touch on one element though that's kind of very poignant about in-country and the way that you're building income. So at Safo, you were in Prague. With in-country, you're now global. So is this the end for SF and California as a place to build out startups, Peter? Well, you know, it's funny. SF is a magical place for you want to build an initial exec team, people that know how to do startups. You want to raise money. You want to get press. And this is the place to do that. I mean, you look at this company. In five, six months, we've built a very seasoned exec team. We've raised a bunch of money. We've gotten a bunch of press. And this is really the only magical place to do that that quickly. In terms of building out a larger organization, you know, at Safo, we learned the hard way. It was very hard. You know, the stories I'm talking about hiring engineers in the Bay Area is insane. And we ended up, you know, we had contractors in Prague and we ended up building a massive organization in Prague. We got up to like 80, 90 people there at the end before we sold it to Citrix. And, you know, there is really good engineering talent elsewhere and they're available. And what's interesting is nowadays, you know, people are moving not just engineering out of the Bay Area. They're doing customer service and accounting and finance and inside sales. And it's all going to places like right now, the hotspots are Salt Lake City, Phoenix, Reno. Now, my question is, why not Sacramento? You can drive to Sacramento. It seems like people intuitively know that California is just a bad place to do business right now, especially for middle class jobs, if you will. So there's like this massive realization all of a sudden that it's not happening here anymore and people are comfortable with it. And I remember at Safo when we decided, okay, we're going to build out in Prague and we basically acro hired a team doing a startup there and they did just an amazing job for us. Our investors were really leery about it. Not Raymond, other ones where they were like, oh, you can't build value this way and what are you going to do? How can you ever sell this company? And two years later, they were sending the rest of their portfolio VPs of engineering and CTO to me to learn how to do it. You know, And it's kind of funny when you look at in-country, in-country isn't just the name of the company, it's the thesis of the company. You know, we enter a country, we get facility, data center facilities in the country, we cooperate with the regulators, but we also want to have staff in those countries. People are like, well, what do you do in China? Well, we have three, four people right now. What do you do in Russia? We have a whole team there. It's part of the thesis of the company that we actually have feet on the ground in these countries. Klaus, you, you mentioned that obviously about the kind of incredible success scaling Safo's team in Prague. How do you make remote teams, not necessarily remote teams, but teams that aren't where you're located, how do you make them work? So, wow, what are some of the best practices you've learned? 
Well, the thing is, we all think that we're multicultural in the Bay Area, and we are in that people come from different places, but they're all trained to work a certain way here. When you are actually working with people in other countries that come from those countries, they work the way they work. And it's very hard for a lot of people to wrap their brains around that, even if they came from somewhere else. So one of the key things here, and you look at it in country, we work with people from Russia that have never left Russia. And we work people in China who have never left China. And we have to have these people all work together. So you really have to be sensitive that it's truly multicultural. You have a bunch of different cultures and a lot of them don't understand the way technology is built at Silicon Valley startups. So there's some training there. Definitely in a lot of foreign cultures, people hate things like technical debt. It drives them absolutely nuts. But technical debt is a tool that you can use to get to market a little quicker, figure out what features are actually needed and then beef them up. So a lot of it is just communication as to what it is that you actually want and awareness of how that culture likes to approach problems so that you can position what you want in such a way that they can actually do it in the timeline you want. I'm sorry, I'm too interested not to dive in that. What did you mean by technical that's a tool that you can use? Well, you know, there is one perspective that anything you build in software, the, a lot of time engineers want to build it perfectly. We're going to pick the, the right architecture and what have you. And it's like you look at the Apollo 11 moon mission. You have to have the system, the backup to the system, the backup to the backup. Everything's got to hang together. You have to think of every fail-safe case. What if the moon's orbit shifts? And what if this engine goes out? And what if this? And what if that? And the engineers just sit around and think forever about every possible thing that could possibly happen. And then, you know, years later, they're ready to launch. And you look at a startup, it's like, okay, we need a set of features. We need the MVP on each of these. Some of them can just be scaffolded. What's most important is getting the whole thing working end to end so we can show it to somebody. You know, it's a very, very different approach when you're building software versus a rocket ship. Totally. No, I absolutely love that analogy and couldn't agree with you more there. I do want to dive into my favorite though, Peter. You know the score here, the quick fire round. So I say a short statement, my friend, and you give me your immediate thoughts. About 60 seconds per one. Are you ready for this? Yes. Okay, so let's start with my favorite and I have read very few, but I intend to read many more in the future. What's your favorite book and why? Favorite book is Snow Crash. It laid out the future for me and I will always remember it as my favorite book and it shifted my reality. Without being rude, you sold six companies. Why do another? It's fun. (laughs) I knew that was coming. (laughs) Tell me, what would you most like to change about tech in Silicon Valley, Peter? Well, I've been here over 20 years. I've been in tech for 30 years. Tech used to just be a bunch of misfit geeks, the type of people that didn't really fit in anywhere. And now it really seems to be dominated by douchebags. But, you know, it just is what it is. I'm totally with you. There's a ton of podcasters there. (laughs) Tell me, fire fast, fire fast. Agree or disagree? Uh, Again, there's all these hard and fast rules. It depends on the situation, the stage of the company. You know, if you're in a hundred person company and you keep cycling through a bunch of people, people start to like lose their faith in management and management's ability to make decisions. But, you know, I had John Louis Gasset, former Apple president. He was on two of my boards and he used to always say, you know, by the time, you know, you're firing somebody, everybody else is like, it's about time that guy got fired. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean? So I don't know, even when you think you're hiring fast, a lot of times you're not. Can I ask you a one and it's how impactful have boards been in your operations of previous companies? And you don't have to answer it. We can take it out. But you know, boards are often hailed as these massive turning points. Have they spawned incredible changes in companies? And are, do they deserve the credit that often board meetings are heaped with? Well, you know, it depends what board, when. I've had some board members that were just absolutely toxic, right? Company destroyers. And I've had other board members that have just been absolutely magical. I think one of the key things on boards is just transparency. Like I have a hack to 
work with boards, which is I send a weekly update. Like literally every week, I send out a report. I call it the TPS report from the movie. But basically, I say everything that's going on with the company, good, bad, every area, what's going on in sales, what's going on in engineering, what's going on in FP&A. And then, you know, like this company, we just had our first board meeting. There's nothing tactical discussed, right? So I'm getting great leverage out of those board members. Totally. No, I couldn't agree with you more. And I love that weekly report. I didn't know that happened. Tell me, who's the biggest rock star in the Valley? There's maybe lesser known or slightly under the radar. You know, he's probably going to be mad at me for putting him above the radar here. But, you know, Raymond Tonzing at Caffeinated. I mean, the guy's in six <laughs> unicorns. He's just a total beast. Listen, I couldn't agree with you more. He is the most under the radar person. And I would love to have him on the show. And he continuously shuns me. Ray, if you're listening, I still want you on the show. But tell me, Peter, the next five years for you and for InCountry, what's the big roadmap ahead? Just grow this thing. Absolutely dominate regulated information. So, you know, we went through this phase where if you were holding a credit card number, this is just like five or six years ago, you took that credit card number and you gave it to somebody who was PCI compliant and they took care of dealing with it, all the regulations around it, the risk associated with it. And let me tell you, you're paying that vendor a lot more than it costs the store 16 digits. And our thesis is that all regulated data, especially in multinational environments, is going to have to be treated this way. And we want to host it all and just grow this company. We think it's a rocket ship. Peter, as you know, I've absolutely loved doing this. I've been so enjoyed getting to know you on a personal level. And I can't thank you enough for joining me today. Thanks so much. I really, really appreciate being here. I can't believe I'm following Bill Gurley. What did I tell you? An incredibly special individual and just such a wonderful person. And if you'd like to see more from Peter and what he's building at InCountry, you can go to InCountry.com. Likewise, you can follow Peter on Twitter at Peter Yarrod. It would also be great to welcome you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can do that on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. I would love to see you there as always. But before we leave you today, did you know that more than half of your customers' digital time is spent on mobile? Well, that's why every digital brand needs a mobile strategy. But as an app marketer, you need to understand the true ROI of your mobile app to be able to make smarter decisions. Adjust takes the guesswork out and provides data-driven insights to drive more effective mobile campaigns, empowering mobile app marketers to convert and retain their most valuable users, answering core questions like, which marketing campaigns perform the best? Where are my most valuable users coming from? How can I boost my retention rates? Essentially, Adjust gives you the ability to make better informed marketing decisions and if you want to learn more about the ways Adjust can help you drive more results for your mobile app, visit adjust.com forward slash Sasta. And if Adjust covers the world of mobile, Lob's making the world programmable. Lob's software platform automates age-old offline business processes in a modern, intelligent, and technology-forward way. For example, they allow you to programmatically send personalized postcards, letters, and checks to your customers with comprehensive, per-piece mail tracking and analytics. But don't take my word for it. With clients like Booking.com, HelloFresh, SeatGeek, and more all loving it, there's no doubt on this one. Lob is the best platform there is for turning address quality and direct mail into competitive advantages for your business. Check it out today at lob.com. And last but by no means least, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to Roger Devine, co-founder of SchoolAuction.net. SchoolAuction is the leading provider of software to help non-profit groups like PTAs, animal shelters, boys and girls clubs, and chambers of commerce put on fundraising auctions. Hi, Gary. My advice is this. Monitor your brand promise constantly. Do your employees describe the same way you do? Do your customers? Do your vendors? 
Are there elements to your brand promise that have diminished in importance to your customers? That would be alarming, but also potentially an opportunity. Love that from Roger. And delivering on what you promise to customers is key. And another key can be using a solution like the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. As always, I cannot thank you enough for your support, and I'm very excited to bring you another fantastic episode next week.